Welcome. You have entered the realm of 1111 Talk Radio. Your host is Simron. It's time to discover your own language with the universe. Empower yourself, broaden your mind, open your heart, and discover who you are. Now, here's your host, Simron. Welcome. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. It is a delight to have you here with me on 1111 Talk Radio. I have been delving into a land that takes me far, far away into other realities. And it has me thinking that we root ourselves so much in where we are and the belief systems that we've been given that so often we rule out the possibilities that can exist otherwise. And if we allowed ourselves to go into that realm where story that we once knew perhaps was different, all of a sudden we begin to shift things and change things. We begin to understand life from this place of the heart and the soul, a place that allows the rooting within our gut and to move through our legs and down into the earth and touch history in a much more subtle and sensuous way. I'm really excited about the conversation that we're going to have today because it is going to allow you to step into the Imagining the Gospels. I have a delightful and beautiful guest today. Her name is Sophie Strand, and she's a writer based in the Hudson Valley who focuses on the intersection of spirituality, storytelling, and ecology. But it is probably more authentic to call her a neo-troubadour, animist with a propensity to spin yarns that inevitably turn into love stories, which is exactly what she has done with the Madonna Secret. This beautiful book landed in my lap, and once I began reading the pages, I became more and more entranced with this story, seeing the truth of it in how it could have been. The Madonna Secret is the story of one woman, and because women are so often written out of stories, it attempts to understand the diversity of female experiences during the Second Temple period, during a time when Jesus lived. The Madonna Secret is a work of fiction that takes seriously Jesus' love of storytelling. What does it mean to tell a story that threatens an empire? What does it mean to tell a story that heals? What does it mean to tell a story of love? This is a look that is seductive, controversial, and rebellious in the most delightful of ways, and these were questions that Sophie placed within her book. And yet she's done this very thing as she has told Miriam's story, as she has expressed Mary Magdalene's way. I'd like to welcome Sophie to 1111 Talk Radio. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much, Simran. And thank you so much for that beautiful summation of, of the project. Yeah, meant a lot to hear it in your voice. It's It's really beautiful to delve into a look as to these teachers, these individuals that we revere so highly that have spanned time to not only become these eternal statures that can be so controversial, can be the ones we cling to, can be the ones we've fallen in love with and want to follow, 
but at the same time be able to really look at them as human. And I think that that was a really integral part of the story for me is seeing this human side and also seeing the side where what if the story were reversed and all the power had actually been from the woman behind the man as opposed to the power we gave the man. And so I want to start off first asking you, what inspired you to tell this story in this way? Hmm, thank you. Well, I was raised by parents who had a strong interest in the history of religion and how partnership-based earth-reverent cultures who honored, you know, nature-based storytelling cycles, you know, um, sustainable ecological practices get turned into hierarchies and then hierarchical religions. And so I was raised in conversation with Theravadan Buddhist monks, nuns, rabbis, theologians, eco-anarchists, who are asking how these spiritual teachers, who seem to be very anti-imperial, very egalitarian, very anarchic, become the figurehead for extractive capitalism, ecocide, anti-Semitism, sexism. And that was a big question within my household, within my upbringing. And I was also told to really respect all different religious and esoteric traditions, to know that each one had a gem and that each one had also been, you know, uh, put through many different levels of translation as it was updated and traveled through different cultures. So I had a strong interest in how spiritual traditions change over time, especially when they're co-opted by empire, and how they can become very distant from their original purposes and inspirations. Um, I was not raised Christian. Um, I was raised by an ex-Buddhist monk and a pagan animist mother who loved, um, you know, stories and Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. But I was always fascinated with the Jesus story. Um, and I had a lot of Israeli relatives uh, who were Jewish. And I spent a lot of my holidays um, with them and some of them in Israel. And I was, I was interested in how a, a Galilean healer who liked to tell stories suddenly becomes the figurehead for the very empire that kills him. It was a question I had. And I, I sought to answer that question with my academic studies, with my research for many, many years. But of course, slowly that question also braided together with my strong intuition that the feminine had held center stage in many cultures for thousands of years before the rise of patriarchy. And what was the feminine within the story of Jesus? How had it been elided? And why was the Magdalene such a focus of the apocryphal texts, the Gnostic texts, the early Christian practices that then get deemed heretical? What was the secret there? So these were all questions I had. And the real answer to your question is, when I, when I left college, I was very, very ill. And I had planned on going to grad school, but it looked like I might have limited time. I have a genetic condition that doesn't have a cure. And I thought you know, if I only have a very limited time left, what's the one project I'd want to do? And I thought I'd want to heal 
the ways in which the women have been written out of the Gospels and the ways that the Gospels have been used to oppress the very people who birthed them into the world. I would like to go back into that story and compost it, um, not try to get rid of it, but to compost it with ecology, with feminine wisdom, and also with the primary documents and the historical information of the time period. I'm taking a pause because just hearing you speak, it's, it's gripped my heart very much in the same way that your story did. Thank you. I, I believe that hearing the younger generations and representatives of that, like yourself, speak in such profound, grounded, loving and heartfelt ways is such a symbol of light and hope for where our world is headed amidst all of the things that we see happening. And so I just want to applaud your voice, your commitment, your courage for diving into such a deep, not just topic, but a deep wound that exists within, I think, religious culture, within the story of history, because there is this imbalance or this question that I think does fall in the minds of many people. And it's so fortunate that your history was woven with the intersection of so many different uh, roads, different faiths, different perspectives that can look at life in a way that really brought a richness and a texture to the story. I can see and hear the elements that come from the, the pagan just in the way that you describe so many of the nature scenes or, or what Miriam walks through or how her powers or visions or skills come through her. And one of the things that I was really struck by was a statement where you uh, say the ecological texture and the sensual reality of Jesus was lost. And I would love for you to dive a little more into a greater understanding of what that means as we prepare for the context of understanding of the Madonna secret. Definitely. Um, so I think it's really important to know that what people think of as the New Testament is the translation of a translation of a translation. And that comes to us at a remove of geographies, cultures, language. So Jesus would have probably been an oral storyteller in Galilee in second temple period um, Galilee during the oppression of the Roman Empire. And so he would have been speaking in Aramaic. Only 2% of people were literate at the time period, and that's only in Judea. So that's not even in the northern, less urbanite um, uh, culture. Um, so he would have been oral. He would have been part of a Targum tradition of wandering storytellers who transmitted their teachings through kind of riddles and interactive pedagogy. And he would have been a hands-on healer. And he would have been very, very involved in a deep ecological Judaism. You know, we forget that Judaism is cyclical, based into lunar tides, very responsive to the land, doesn't believe it belongs to the land, believes it belongs to God, and that many, many Jewish um, stories are all about correct treatment of the land and environmental embeddedness. And so he would have been part of a kind of, I often call it a animistic folk Judaism um, that was very focused on hands-on healing, 
um, farming, <laughs> storytelling, mysticism, nature-based mysticism. And the problem is that when that, when those stories are translated into Greek, which was the language of the empire oppressing the Jews, and then translated away from Judaism and away from um, Galilee, they start to lose their radical anti-imperial sentiment and also their ecological wisdom. My favorite very small-scale example of this is the statement that's very well known, the kingdom is a mustard seed. Kingdom is like a mustard seed. So when we hear that in a congregation in Oklahoma in the 21st century, it can seem relatively simple. It can seem like, you know, a weed takes over the garden, something very small becomes very big, that your faith will grow into something that takes over. Um, but the truth is much more complicated when you replant. I always say when you have a character or a myth or a story that's been co-opted by empire, you have to replant it rewild it and retell it. So you replant it in its original language, its socio-political and anthropological context, and its ecological context. Suddenly it takes on new life. So for Second Temple period Galileans, first of all, you were initially farmers, and you farmed the land for thousands of years, and you buried the bones of your ancestors, often underneath the floorboards of your house. So the land is created by the bones of your ancestors that then grows the bread you feed your family. And you don't believe land can belong to anyone. It belongs to God. You are tenant farmers. Along come the Romans. First of all, they steal your land, land that belongs to God. They steal your farmland. They give you bad loans, and they unland you. They make you tenant, you know, you have to be day workers. They turn your food producing farms into vineyards to produce wine for Roman elites many countries away. All of a sudden your family is starving. You can't feed them. You don't have land. You don't live on the land where your ancestors were um, buried anymore. So a mustard seed at that time period was the most pernicious weed. And it would come in and destroy your crops overnight. And to have your crops destroyed wasn't just a, um, you know, an inconvenience. It was life-threatening. If you were working a farm and your crops were destroyed, you couldn't pay your taxes. You couldn't give um, your crops to your employer. You couldn't feed your family. You seeked retribution, perhaps death. So to say the kingdom is here, the kingdom is this unjust situation whereby you are oppressed by empire, so it's not some far removed moment of rebalancing the scales. It's this moment that is difficult to understand and violent and terrible. It's now, and it's this weed that could destroy your very livelihood. That's a pretty radical statement when you plant it back in its context. That's a very radical statement. And yet, as you speak it all, we're in a similar time. It's not to the degree that you're talking about in those Galilean times, but when we look at the way the world is in cycles and how we move through these energies of masculine and feminine, we rise into oppression and then we move into a revolution and reawakening. It's almost as if this is a template. It is an understanding of these cycles. And Jesus was this Jewish teacher that rose up amidst this oppression and so he was he was almost like a mustard seed himself in the way that he was going to uh 
rewild and, and unwind and explode what was existing as oppression in a new way. And I think that that's, people look at him as the one that has risen up, but in your story, The Madonna Secret, you actually very much are the presence and the place as being the one that was powerful, that had the gifts, that not only discovered all of that and brought forth uh, so much of what we attributed to Jesus, but literally gave him his power in that way. And that's a very bold and radical perspective to provide. Talk a little bit more about why this perspective and how it can empower the feminine archetype, especially at this time with the patriarchy. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I if we look at the Mediterranean basin, at greater Europe, we can see that for most of human history, there was a great respect for the ecology of beings that fed you and brought you life. So the more than human can outside your door, the birds, the wheat, the grasses, the trees. And for a divine feminine who explodes anthropocentric confines, you know, mother as matter, as the soil womb that gives birth to food and then decays and breaks down death, that keeps those cycles moving. So mother is matter. It's bigger than just a gender. It's the very material that recycles life, keeps life moving. And if we see, look at all of these ancient traditions, we see that there's always a duality and a balance, the movement between gradients, between the summit and the valley, the masculine, the feminine, the androgen that is a rhizomatic continuity between them. And that, you know, no one pole is more important than the next. It's the movement between them all that keeps things flexible, keeps the lymph moving. So we see the hieros gamos, which is the divine partnership. Isis, Osiris, you know, Demuzi and Astarte and Nana, Arishkagal and um, Tammuz. Um, and, you know, we see that it's important to always have the sun and the moon, the night and the day. Um, and I think that what becomes complicated about figures like Jesus is we know from the Gospel of Luke that the ministry was financially supported by wealthy Jewish women. We know that the earliest supporters of the um, ministry after his death were women, and that many of the original priests were women. We see these images in catacombs where the first Christians would have their sacramental meals. We see the pictures that showed those meals with women uh, giving the sacraments. So we know that women were very, very attracted to this tradition, that women um, also saw that Jesus was interrupting ideas about purity that oftentimes exiled them from certain kinds of sacred traditions. He was saying that, no, purity is not something that is in your blood or your gender. It's the way you act. It's kind of your moral imperative. <laughs> um, so it's not gendered and it's not about any substances or any kind of impure actions. Um so for me, it seems very clear that Jesus was very, very inspired by, informed, and supported by women. It was women who are at the cross and at the tomb, and the Magdalene has a great role in European folklore. I oftentimes say that you have the big tradition, which is written by the victors, often white and male, and then you have the little tradition, which is the folklore and the rituals and the actual sacred tradi traditions of the people. 
And in the people's tradition of both the Mediterranean and Europe, you see for thousands of years, the Magdalene and the mother of Jesus, Mary, as holding like the preeminent sacred role that it was these female figures nursing their child, which of course is a continuation of the Isis Horus iconography that predates Jesus as being really central to the tradition. So it's not a monotheistic tradition. It's much more pantheistic because you have Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit, you have Mary, you have the Magdalene. Um, you have all of these different figures who kind of keep the spiritual lymph moving. It really isn't until the Enlightenment that you have the crackdown on the cult of saints and on Marian traditions. And throughout the book, what goes unspoken, or what goes spoken in the book, but goes kind of unspoken throughout history, is the sensual aspect, is this romance, is this love affair. It's, it's known that Mary Magdalene and Jesus loved one another but in the way that you portray it in the madonna secret it is sweet it is curious it is frustrating at times it is compelling it is so many things between them that begins to rise and open up that we get to be a part of and to witness in a way that makes them very human and yet almost towers them even higher than they were before. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I was very inspired by the Song of Songs, which, you know, has been called by Jewish scholars the holiest of holies, that, you know, this text that seems highly erotic and embodied is actually deeply sacred um, in the Jewish tradition. And I was really interested in the kind of mystical sensual aspect of an ecology of courtship that, you know, it's no one bride or bridegroom that features in that text. It's the polyphony, the many voiced discordant, sometimes harmonic, sometimes clamorous song of many being, beings weaving together into an ecosystem. And so for me, the Song of Songs was a way to reimagine Jesus. So Jesus self-identifies as the bridegroom in many, many, many instances in both the apocryphal and the synoptic gospels. And so in the second temple period, that would have been a direct nod to the sensual mysticism of the Song of Songs. And so it was really important to me to not just bring to life the women, the servant girls, the slaves, the, you know, the people written out, but to bring back to life the ecology the complex ecosystem that weaves together the bodies of these people. Mm, really, really beautiful. There's, uh, there's so many passages within the book that really allow that to be quite felt. And initially, we meet Miriam as this younger girl who is still very much boyish in figure, has not found her shape yet, and she's feisty. And she doesn't understand why things are the way they are. And you can see her stand up. And she is this advocate, this activist in a way that wants to stand in her power and yet surrounded by this patriarchal, masculine way of tradition and culture and how things are done and what women are to learn or not learn or do or not do. And that's a very powerful archetype to be able to witness and yet still at the same time see the oppression 
that exists that you still have to be kind of caged within during that time. Talk about shaping her in the story as a young girl. Oh, yeah. I mean, it felt so important for me to be able to try and imagine the complexity of growing up with (laughs) men and a tradition that she really wanted to enter and really loved, but also realized was not tailored to fit her shape. (laughs) And I think that even today in contemporary culture, women, when they enter academia and they enter into the workplace, we experience this dissonance all the time, that our sensibility, our way of communicating, our bodily cycles are not um, represented or cared for or understood within the dominant culture. And yet we still might want to operate within those bounds. And that friction is a really interesting place to investigate that Miriam wants to be an intellectual and a mystic. She wants to engage with her father and the other male intellectuals and spiritual seekers around her. But that means that she has to both self-betray and have self self inquiry all the time. And there's a lot of friction there. Um, I identified with it myself, but I also tried to honor the nuance of what it might have been like for a woman really seeing violence on a scale day to day that we that surely still happens today, but doesn't happen necessarily in front of our eyes in front of our homes with the same kind of regularity. The story starts off with her witnessing the experience of a woman being stoned, a woman who's being called an adulteress, a a woman who has been recently married and is uh, being called names by father, by husband. And to think of those times when women were treated in that way, whether it was an actuality that had taken place or whether it was just the determination that men had made really spoke right away to the level of power and violence and control that could exist when women were not in their place. Yeah, and I hope, but I always wanted to make it clear that while Miriam is experiencing the sexism that's inherent in her culture, and that was inherent in every culture pretty much at that time period, the greater violence is the is the ecosystem of empire that is killing her brother, killing her father and her cousins, that's wearing down all of these people who are trying to survive. And so for me, it's all about the intersection of oppression, that one person can be doing violence to one person, but they're both experiencing the violence of empire. So that complexity was important for me to highlight. Mm, And beautifully done. My guest today is Sophie Strand, and we are talking about the Madonna secret. And I want to share with you a part of the story that Miriam was speaking. Uh, And she was speaking it at a time when she was older and relaying the story back to Lucas, who was looking for the story of Yeshua. Yeshua made me frantic, and yet it was not upsetting to be with him. What I felt was almost hunger. But as I put a piece of bread to my mouth, I found that I had no appetite. And he is as flawed, as frustrating, as irresistible as he was on that day. Even now, years later, having heard the rumors and the stories, I mourn the fact that he resists representation. No portrait can summon the strange union of childlike wonder and keen intelligence that danced across the features of his face. Perhaps I'm telling you this story because I think it will help. At the end, he will stand as he was in life 
stark and uncreated as a stone that stands in the middle of a flat land, like those stones that stand in circles in the tin islands, stones that confound even those who live among them. How did they arrive? How do they persist through the weather and time to stand so tall? This is from the book, The Madonna Secret, by Sophie Strand. She is also the author of The Flowering Wand, and this memoir, uh, an additional memoir about disability and ecology, The Body is a Doorway, Healing Beyond Hope and Healing Beyond the Human. I invite you to find out more about her at sophiestrand.com. You can explore all of her poetry books and all of the beautiful work that she's doing, including other interviews and uh, videos that she has on her site. Again, that's sophiestrand.com. We'll be right back after these messages. Follow Voice America at facebook.com forward slash voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Have you seen 1111? Do you wonder why certain numbers keep showing up in your life? 11, 111, 22, 33, 444. People all over the world are seeing 1111 and learning the language of universal communication. Subscribe to 1111 Magazine today. www.1111mag.com 1111 Magazine is a bi-monthly print publication that offers a rich, multi-sensory experience. As you engage with experts and topics of consciousness, become enlightened, empowered, and energized so you live a passionate and authentic life of conscious choices. 1111 Magazine, a daily staple for lifting the mindset, discovering the heart, and stepping into conscious living. 1111 Magazine. Order now at www.1111mag.com. 1111mag.com. Do you want more, more joy, more abundance, more power and presence? How would it feel to have more loving relationships, more empowered community, greater fulfillment and life purpose? The 1111 Mastermind Community inspires, empowers, guides and supports transformation. Shift your mind, expand your heart, deepen insights, let go and chart a new course, dream a new dream. The 1111 Mastermind Community is an online portal for personal transformation and soulful expansion. Go to courses.1111mag.com. That's courses.1111mag.com. Change begins with you. Let it be simple, convenient, and transformative. The time is now. Step through the 1111 gateway. Courses.1111mag.com. Live up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel. You are listening to 1111 Talk Radio. Simron is an award-winning author, publisher of 1111 Magazine, powerful speaker of wisdom, and a life mentor. Find out more at imsimron.com. Now, back to 1111 Talk Radio. Before we get back to my guest, Sophie Strand, I wanted to mention my new trilogy as well, Living, Being, and Knowing. It's interesting, after having written this trilogy and having it released, 
every time I read a book, I find the different aspects of my own books within them. Living the Seven Blessings of Human Experience depicts you, your identity, your personality, and our primarily unconscious self walking in the world. Being the seven illusions that derail personal power, purpose, and peace depict your animal, shadow, monster, and demon self that exists that we must embrace, love, and bring to a place of neutrality within us. And knowing the seven human expressions of grace depicts our humanity. We believe that we've touched our humanity, but for most of the world, we've never even accessed it. It's time now to discover the multidimensional aspects of you and merge them together as one, to be present to all these parts and pieces that you have. The one thing that I loved about the Madonna secret as I moved through is you discover these different aspects in many of the characters. You discover the humanity. As you move through with Miriam, you discover some of the experiences that she goes through, and you discover the shadows and the monsters and the demons that others project onto her or that she even believes she holds at times because of what others project. We all have these different components, and in today's world, at this time, it is more important than ever to allow ourselves to open up to these aspects of ourselves and bring love to them. I want you to know that you can get The Madonna Secret or find out more information by going to sophiestrand.com. You might also want to look up her other book, The Flowering Wand, Rewilding the Sacred Masculine. Long before the sword-wielding heroes of legend readily cut down forests, slaughtered the old deities, and vanquished their enemies, there were playful gods, animal-headed kings, mischievous lovers, trickster harpists, and vegetal magicians with flowering wands. As eco-feminist scholar Sophie Strand discovered these wilder, more magical modes of the masculine that have always been hidden in plain sight. I invite you to discover this beautiful creature known as Sophie Strand and dive into all of the beauty that she has to offer. Sophie, as we move through the Madonna secret, what ends up happening is we have uh, a man that goes by the name of Lucas, and he is looking for a story. He is searching for the Christos. He wants to understand and know what has happened, and he's led to the woman that can tell him the story. He's led to Miriam, and there are all these myths around her that she's this woman in the forest that has long hair and uh, runs naked, that she's a wild woman, that she's many different things. And I think when we think about the female archetype, the feminine, we want to attribute so many of these different faces to her because so much of that is coursing through us as women. We feel the rumblings of this inside of our blood and our bone, whether it's from history or story, and brought it into a place where it's palpable to feel and touch touch and see and imagine that she could be any of these things as we then embark and meet her within that cabin and we get to know her and her story. But about the female archetype, um, I know you've written a lot about rewilding the sacred masculine, but this full gamut of the feminine archetype is so important right now, especially for young women that are really wanting to assert all aspects of their power. 
Mm, so I began my research into the history of religion from a divine feminine lens. So I have known great violence at the hands of people who identify as men. And I for, I for a long time didn't really want to engage with male archetypes, male mythology, male gods, that I really sought to um, sought the divine feminine as refuge. But as I grew older and realized that some of my favorite people and family members were men who were suffering from the conflation of masculinity with patriarchy, I realized I would have to complexify my understanding of the sacred. Um, so I think the Madonna secret for me is my exploration of those feminine archetypes relating with the complex experience of the male archetype. Um, and I think that you know you see you see prostitutes who are autonomous and who are have chosen their work you have people who have suffered through sex work you have slaves servant girls you have women who have domestic violence marital rape women with miscarriage midwives you have all sorts of different you have miriam the crone miriam the maiden miriam the bridegroom Miriam the widow. Um, I wanted to show that there are there are many ways to understand that the, the the female is not just the maid, not just the moment of fertility and possibility. She's also the crone. She's also she's the womb and the tomb. And the Magdalene is such an incredible spectrum of femininity and that she's there with Jesus at the tomb and the cross, but she's also there with him as his spiritual counterpart, as the financial supporter of his ministry, as being a person who could be uh, sick, have seven devils, but then experience healing, someone who has known radical hardship and spontaneous remission. So for me, the Magdalene is not just one archetype, but an ecosystem of archetypes. And I hope that that is at least um, kind of available in the story and all of the different characters who emerge. It, it becomes very, very evident. And there are so many wonderful lines in here. I want to go through and just speak to some of them and let you share whatever you'd like to share uh, as you hear them again. Uh, there was a section where she goes walking in the night and within herself she's looking for Yeshua but yet she ends up at this pond and she sees her mother and she walks in and she slips into the water and starts to drown and she thinks this is how I end alone drowning and then she is pulled out by Yeshua and she says thank you for saving me and he says you'll save me someday I expect he replied looking away from me hiding an expression I had just seen surfacing Clouds in his eyes, storm clouds, the scales will balance. Uh, I mean, I think that is one of the tragedies of the story, is that there are moments where they need each other to recorrect the ways in which they are reactive. Um, they justify their anger, their pride gets in the way of what they're seeing, and that early in the story, they still have the ability to kind of correct each other, balance each other. But because of the frenzy of empire, the sexism of the time period, their wedges come between them. And so I do think that Miriam can't quite save Yeshua in the way that both of them think she could. And that becomes very clear at the end. Um, and I think it's one of the reasons why she wants to tell the story, that she can't balance the scales while he's alive, but she can try and do it afterwards. Mm -hmm. There's another place where she hears a name is everything 
Kamat answered gravely. It is the music we respond to when we are lost. Someone goes down to the river and calls out our name, and somehow we hear it and return. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's a complex thing. We are, we're gifted names by people who are not us, who have ideas about what we're supposed to be. But names are also portals. They're ancestor altars that connect us to, you know, lineages and traditions that are beyond us. You know, Miriam comes from Mar of the Sea. You know, there's been some speculation that it was not a name, but it was a title of early Jewish priestesses who still had a kind of egalitarian role next to men. Um, and so Miriam is a, is a complex name. It's a name that hints at older, more feminine um, traditions. And so Miriam is gifted this name that also belongs to Jesus's mother. So she occupies this, this mutable role, this role that she reclaims um, within a tradition that is forgotten that the feminine can be mystically powerful. There are times where she comes across a woman that almost speaks into her of foresight. At one point, it was the blind woman on the ground. Anna, the, another time, it was in the place, uh, the brothel, where the, the older woman comes to her. And for a moment, she says, where was that woman? Who is she? Was that me? So were there times where an older version of her came to her, or were these women that were speaking into her? I think the beauty of fiction is that it's an open text. It's a text that leaves open the possibility of both being true at once. And the reader, of course, gets to infuse the text with their sense of what's true. I do give you instances where time refluxes in both directions. So there is that possibility in the text that this is an older version of her, a guardian angel of her future come to talk to her. But I also believe that as women, we all can be guardian angels of each other and that an older woman can be us for us and can speak to us in our own voice at moments when we need someone else. So I do also think that there's the very real practical experience of women, you know, engaging with each other and, and passing along the wisdom of survival. Miriam seemed to have some inner conflict with her gifts and it would be understandable because those outside of her were claiming she was possessed and and demonized the gifts and yet on the other hand she could lay her hands on rebecca and heal her or lay her hands on marta and heal her so she says if they could give life and heal could they also cause pain could they draw life out of a body What's the fear here for her? What's the real conflict in regard to that? Was it that she could not control her own power? I think that women are always, women who are powerful know that they are, um, what is it called? The tall poppy syndrome? That when you're, when you're visible, when you're powerful, you're also more subject, you know, more vulnerable to violence and to oppression and to being struck down. And I think the moment that Miriam realizes she has power, she also realizes that she's vulnerable and can become a target. She also realizes that she's tapping into a kind of power that isn't represented in the scriptures or in the male-dominated texts. It's something that doesn't have a rule book. And because she's a woman, she has anger. She has anger at her circumstances, at the ways in which her life is limited and made smaller. And I think that when we're angry and powerful, 
the two can merge in ways that are really, really complicated. So I think Miriam is grappling with something that a lot of women grapple with, which is where we are experiencing oppression and violence, and we're also trying to claim our sovereignty and our personal power. Can we do both <laughs> without um, causing more harm? And was this also part of what Miriam's mother was dealing with when she was in such fear of her? Was I that- think so, yes. I mean, I think, you know, ever since the witch trials where women and mothers and daughters were forced to, under torture, um, confess, uh, turn in other women, we have been taught epigenetically, generation after generation, that we cannot trust each other as women, that to trust other women is to put yourself at risk. And so our very mode of claiming strength, which is in community and which is in joining hands, is taken away from us. So women grow suspicious of each other. That's how patriarchy keeps women in check is by making sure that they aren't friends with each other and aren't able to team up and, you know, call the shots themselves. And so I think Miriam's mother is grappling with the culture, with this understanding that if her daughter is powerful, her daughter is also in danger. And that if her daughter is in danger, she could be in danger. And so on her deathbed, she hands Miriam a stone statue. Can you share a little bit about the symbolism of this statue and almost that moment of reconciliation for her mother of or recognition of her daughter's true power. Oh, yeah. It's one of my favorite scenes that I wrote personally. I was very interested in the archaeology of um, Judea and Galilee and the fact that a very anti-Semitic Christian modern paradigm creates a monolithic idea of what Judaism was. But the truth is that there were a biodiversity of Jewish practices that differed from the northern traditions to the southern, and that many of them were still very folkloric, animistic, and still very highly integrated with earlier divine feminine Asherah worship. So Asherah was often represented as a tree, as a sacred tree, as a woman, and as often as these small Asherah statuettes who would wear a long fluted skirt and have very pointy breasts and be kind of a mother figurine. And so you see William J. Deaver, who is an archaeologist um, of the time period, wrote a book called Did God Have a Wife? Where basically he goes through and just art shows how many of these small statuettes were in normal peasant and farmer's homes in Second Temple period. That, you know, people in Jesus' time period would have really come across these older artifacts of an Asherah tradition, a divine feminine priestess tradition. And so what Miriam's mother is doing in that moment is she's giving Miriam the secret, the secret that there is still a place for her within the sacred, and that even if she can't say it out loud, she can hand it to her um, as, as an actual material object, as, you know, almost like a rosary bead that she can hold and pray on. Hmm. As we move through the story, we meet Yeshua, and he is... At that point, he has not gone out on his own. And Miriam is recounting to Lucas who Yeshua was, because Lucas has come with this place, this demeanor of awe when it comes to Yeshua. And she says, His face became visible as he shook out his long hair, this madman, his tunic covered in dirt, playing like an animal with the children, was Yeshua. Oh, Lucas, you don't believe me? 
You would have him arrive solemn in clean white robes, sitting at a fire and explaining matters of spirit? Is it hard for you to hear your Savior called a madman? Let me assure you, he was mad, irresistibly mad. Ah, oh, yeah. I mean, I oftentimes say that in order to gain the attention of an oppressed people who were cynical, they didn't necessarily, they'd seen a lot of different preachers and zealots come and be murdered by the Romans, make prophecies that didn't come true. In order to command the attention of people like that hardened, traumatized, tired people, you had to have had really embodied, wild, kinetic intelligence. Like you would have had to be able to command an audience like a rock star, like a comedian, that we have this idea of Jesus being this diminutive, you know, smug, spiritual savior. But he would have had to be a performer, a clown in order to get the attention of these people. And so it was really fun to be able to imagine what an embodied magician storyteller might have actually been like. How can I describe for you the man who everyone believes? No better, Lucas, you who have said his name with the intimacy of a lover, and yet you have never met him, never touched his clumsy, callous hands, never heard his laughter. That was no holy music, I can assure you. It was thunder echoing off slabs of rock. Over the years, so many have tried to describe him. Even to me, they would tell of his magnificence. What can I tell you that you do not think you already know? You would rather see him as you do in your mind, thin, sad, and already cleansed of the dirt of this world. Mm, yeah. You're completely shifting the way that people might look at who the Christ was. And I find that to be a very powerful and beneficial piece because all of a sudden the words that Christ was known to have said become more applicable to the average human. You know, and I also I think it exposes the tragedy, which is, think of any 33-year-old you know. That's quite young. <laughs> Imagine the frailty, the questioning, the fact that he was just at the beginning of his spiritual teachings. That's what I really want to say is, it's a tragedy that this human wasn't allowed to mature to refine his image and his and his vision. What if he had had 20 more years that we pretend like this tiny snapshot of his earliest teachings is representative of an entire paradigm, but it was just the beginning. Mm. There's another beautiful passage where you talk about children, which I think is so true. You say children are wiser than adults, you see. They take grief seriously. They mourn for the dead characters in a story as if they had really lived. They beat their breasts for a tragic poem. Forgive me, Lucas, for speaking like an Egyptian about such things, but I truly believe children's wisdom comes from how close they are to their last lives. Recently born, they are closer to death, closer to heartache and separation. They understand that the stories we tell are not make-believe tales. They are memories. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that was a definitely an authorial choice to put in the paradigm of reincarnation. I mean, it did exist in Judaism at the time period for prophets. There were certain prophets that were seen, seen to have come again and again. But the idea of everyone as having experienced life after life was definitely more Egyptian than it was Jew Jewish. So that was um, a choice I had to make one of Miriam's um, caretakers, be it an Egyptian, who gives her this different perspective.
And I know we're coming to the close of the show, but I can't leave without one of my most favorite scenes. And it's when Yeshua is touching the feet of this woman who is blind, and it is just after he has uh, supposedly healed the man who could not walk. And both of them are experiencing this rumbling, this connection between their feet, this energetic that is occurring within them. And they come face to face, and he says, What did you do to me? Your power came through me. I could not have healed them. It was because of you. Mm, Yeah, I mean, I think we live in the age of the heroic individual, the atomized self, this idea that individuals can make things happen and can change history. But the truth is we do nothing alone. That it is always that healing, that storytelling, that magic is always the interface between beings, between people and environment. And so I wanted to show that true healing happens when people join together, when people complement each other's energy and create something synergistic, something new. As we close the show, Sophie, what is it that you really desire for women specifically to walk away from this book feeling and knowing? Oh, I want I want us to reclaim the stories that we were erased from. I want us to reinsert ourselves into the paradigms that we have been told we have no place within. And I want to, I want us to interrupt the monologues of patriarchy. And I want us to do it with story, with song, with art, with creativity, with community. Um, I was inspired by the Red Tent by Anita Diamant um, and, and her ability to bring back to life the women of the Old Testament. So I hope that it inspires artists, musicians, women, and storytellers to continue this work within their own traditions, within their own dominant paradigms. Mm. And to close out, I want to read one more portion from the book where Miriam is speaking to Lucas. Do not worry about who will understand. It will serve to awaken those who are ready. My story is made of soil and water and wind and pain. It lives in people's breath. It is held in the body. Somebody Someday it will not just be written down, it will be told, woman to woman, it will be sung. This is from The Madonna Secret by Sophie Strand. Sophie Strand is the author of The Flowering Wand, The Madonna Secret, and a forthcoming memoir about disability and ecology. The body is a doorway, healing beyond hope, healing beyond the human. I invite you to find out more about her by going to sophiestrand.com. Thank you, Sophie, for being on 1111 Talk Radio. Until next time, I look forward to being with you again. In love, of love, with love, and as love. I am Simran. Be well. Thank you for opening your mind to a new reality, your heart to greater compassion, and your experience of aliveness with 1111 Talk Radio. Join host Zimron next Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern Time to step through the gateway of conscious living here on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Remember, you are not on the journey. You are the journey.